uh, I'm just humbled by the opportunity to be with you and to share with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your presence with us this morning by your word and spirit. We ask you now, as we open your word, to transform us. Lord, to change our minds and our hearts so that we might comprehend who you are, find delight and contentment in you and in your glory and joy in promoting your excellencies to a lost world. Amen. My text is Psalm 96. Would you turn there? Psalm 96. I've been told ESV, friends. I hope that's okay. I'm sure you can follow along whatever you've brought along. Let's, uh, let's read together. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, if you're sincerely a follower of Jesus, I hope you'll agree and understand that sharing the gospel, that evangelism is important. Uh, the logic would be something like, I think for you, well, hell is real, judgment is coming, eternity is long, people need to be ready for that by trusting in the ransom payment of the blood of Jesus on the cross for them. Right? What, what could be more obviously important than sharing the good news of the cross and the rescue of that with everyone? The reality is, of course, for most of us, that we tend not to be urgent with everyone about the good news of the cross. Why not? Real question, if you're brave, why not? Why do we struggle to be urgent and on mission with everyone around us? 
afraid of what they think of what? What they'll think of you, yeah. We lack compassion. Yeah, afraid we might get it wrong. What if I muck it up? Yeah, thanks. Busy, distracted. I'm gonna as soon as I, but then, yeah. It's awkward. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I've got this theory, so this is not in the script. I've got this theory that really good evangelists are just a little bit on the spectrum. They lack sensitivity. And so they're just out there. They've got that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, all of those things. there's a growing hostility in our culture to people who proclaim exclusive things. Uh, We we don't wish to offend people. Who who wants to be offensive? Just kind of wake up in the morning. I hope I'm offensive today. (laughs) Not many of us want that, do we? we? We desire to maintain friendship. We desire to remain comfortable, don't we? In our culture, we are busy. We are busy. I'm so tired of answering. I'm trying to get out of the habit of saying to people, how are you? I'm really busy. It's, it's really tiresome saying it, I find, but it, it, it's kind of true. I'm trying to work against it. But yeah, a lot of people say, do you know what? I just lack connection with people, with non-Christians around me, partly because I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, I just don't know so many Christians. They're all understandable, aren't they? And no doubt you could add to that list. Here's the thing. None of them overturned the logic. None of them overturned the logic. Hell is real, judgment is coming, eternity is long. People need to be ready by trusting in the ransom payment of Jesus' blood on the cross for them. That's the logic. And none of it is overturned by any of the reasons we might have, as understandable as they might be, for not being urgently on mission. Can you imagine facing your own judgment? And as God welcomes you into his kingdom because of your trust in Jesus, and him saying to you, hey, you really did very little to tell others about me, but that's okay because I know you are busy. (laughs) No, people all around us are facing a Christless eternity. What Jesus describes as outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So our reasons are not excuses. They're just things we need to overcome. We need to be on mission. How do we make it so that we overcome our reasons for not being on missions? so that we are consistently, urgently on mission for the people around us. Now, the answer is often skill, right? What what we need is to be better equipped so that we're more confident. And it's true. On 1 Peter, it's a matter of obedience, that we're to be ready to give reason for the hope that we have. We should be able to explain what Jesus has done for us. 
We should be readers and critiquers of our culture and seeking to grow in our ability to answer people's objections to trusting in Jesus. So, yeah, that's true. Or we might say, what we need is constant reminder. We need people like Riley to stand up and kind of wail upon our will and just say, get out there because people are going to hell if you don't tell us. It's kind of the Nike thing. Do you say Nike or Nike? I never know. Whatever. Just do it. Just do it. That's, this is the just do it. We need to just do it. And you know what? Sometimes that might be appropriate. That's just part of what's needed. But if all you have is skill and someone wailing upon your will, or let me put it this way, wailing upon, like hammering your guilt... If that's all you have, here's where I think that ends up. Usually ends up. It ends up in a kind of cycle. The cycle is this. The guilt, spurt of activity, nothing, cycle. Guilt, spurt of activity, nothing, guilt, spurt of activity. Is anyone familiar with this? It's not a dance move. It's right. right here's what happens. There's a sermon about evangelism. Right, Riley does a course, he's a compelling preacher, I love this man, he loves me, he reckons I love him back. He's great. Gives a compelling sermon that convicts you about the need to be on mission, on evangelism. And out of a combination of compassion and guilt, you have a burst of activity, right? You maybe finally actually have that conversation with that friend that you've had a burden for for a long time and maybe you've been praying for them and you share a component of the gospel with them, and it doesn't go anywhere, and you don't follow it up, but you go to your small group, your home group, whatever you call them here, and you share about it, and everyone's very proud of you, and they pat you on the back, and you feel deeply relieved. And that's enough to relieve your guilt for a little while. And you go back into your shell until Riley preaches the next sermon. How do you break out of that cycle? Here's what I think we need. What we need is a heart soaked in the right motivation. Deeply rooted in the right motivation. And some of us might say, yes, yes, I know what that motivation is. I know the, the motivation, what, what I need is more compassion. I'm this compassionless person. I'm not concerned enough for the people around me and their eternal fate. This is the same compassion Jesus, a beautiful Bible word, dual word study on compassion, the same compassion Jesus has as he looks over his own lost people. And of course, if we're Christ-like, we will be growing in compassion for the people around us. But according to Psalm 96, there is a more foundational motivation that we need to soak our hearts in if we are to fuel being consistently and urgently on mission. So, if you haven't got it open, let's go back to it. Let's have a look at what's built into the start of Psalm 96. Riley said you don't do PowerPoints, you don't do headings. Okay, there's a heading here. If you don't, Okay, the heading is the most basic reality. Have a look at verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 
Now think of the ancient Near East. That's the context for the psalm. It was a polytheistic world. Poly means many, theos, God, many gods. There were many gods that demanded devotion, obedience, sacrifice. So right from the beginning, actually, um, God's word as it came into the world, the revelation of God as it came into the world, Genesis 1, verse 1. God, not gods, God created the heavens and the earth. That That was a counter to all the polytheistic beliefs of the ancient world as God spoke into it. The Shema, the central creed of the Old Testament, is from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Likewise, in the New Testament, I'm just flicking around a little bit, 1 Corinthians, verse 8. Paul writes to that church, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, inverted commas, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom, all, for whom are all things and for whom we exist, the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so here in the psalm. All the made-up gods are worthless. But the Lord made the heavens. We live in a sceptical age, don't we? Not just scepticism about religion, not just scepticism about Christianity. People are sceptical about everything. They're sceptical about the mainstream media about what they see online. They're sceptical about authority figures. They're sceptical about scientific inquiry. We live in a deeply sceptical age. And as people have abandoned belief in God, they've been opened up to belief about anything. Our secular culture is a sea of man-made, self-centred, confusing, shifting sand. What do you build your life on? Do you know what? Deep down, in the dark of night, most people, secularists, their answer is, I have no idea. I have no idea what to build my life on. They're just living in the six inches in front of their face, hoping that it all works out. Here's the bedrock. Here's the bedrock. In Psalm 96, there are not many gods. There is one God. The one God who's the creator of all things. Who is known, we just read in 1 Corinthians, ultimately by knowing Jesus. And we're going to come to that. That's the most basic reality. Let's talk about the most basic duty. Because the most basic reality leads to the most basic Duty. The psalmist affirms the reign of the one God, but then also a clear command as to what the people of God are to do about that reality. Um, have a look at verses 1 and 2. We've got this kind of threefold call to worship. Threefold call to worship. 
Uh, verse 1, sing to the Lord. So good to do that with you this morning. Verse 2, sing to the Lord, praise his name, tell of his salvation. Verse 3, declare his glory. Now for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, this is just the defining fact of their existence, their being as a people. God had saved them from Egypt, created them as a nation. His covenantal care, he promised over them, his covenantal care had preserved them against their enemies. So he was their saviour. And this was, therefore, their most basic duty, to praise and honour him. He made them there to praise him. But have a look where all this praising is to be done. Verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. Now, at first glance, you might go, oh, it's kind of a nice concept. But, uh, you know, how do you do that in practice? How, how are the nations over here? That'd have to be very loud, right? No internet in those days. But Jerusalem was a bustling city that often hosted international traders and visitors. And from about 300 BC, there was Jewish synagogues or churches um, all around the empire, all around the Mediterranean. So there was lots of mingling of Jews and non-Jews all through the Old Testament, actually. And the intention always was for Israel to be God's priestly people representing him and proclaiming his glories to the nations, being a blessing to the whole world. And so for the Jews, here is a kind of evangelism. It's not just about them. But ultimately, all people are to be involved in this basic duty of singing praises to God. You can see it. Just look down the psalm. Verse 7. Families of the peoples are to ascribe glory and strength to the Lord. Or verse 10. It's a message for among the nations. Now, why? Right, why? Let's just keep tying the logic of the psalm together and making sure we see it. So why should it be all people? We've already hinted at this. But, but there's a deeply counter-modern cultural thing going on here. Because, you see, God chose the descendants of Abraham, didn't he? They're the Jewish nation. He saved them from Egypt. He brought them into the promised land. He defeated their enemies. He didn't do it for the other mobs. Shouldn't they be left to do their own thing? The 21st century Australia reaction to this, isn't that arrogant? That other people should be called into the worship of this Jewish God? We'll look at the first section again. Let's trace the logic. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous works among all peoples. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. Okay, why? Verse 4. Note the because or the for. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Verse 5, 4, all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So why is the most, most basic of the Jews the most basic duty of all mankind? Because he's most worthy of all praise. 
most worthy of all praise. Why is that? Verse 5, all these other so-called gods are idols, which means they're just objects made by human hands. That's what it means. Creatures made these things. You know what creatures are? They're creations. Creatures have a creator. So creatures made the idols. They're not gods at all. In contrast, this is the contrast of verse 5, idols versus what? The Lord who made the heavens. The heavens is just another way of saying all things. Just meditate for a second on all things. Seriously. Like, cast your mind into the solar system and then the universe and then the Milky Way and then your molecules and your children, the material, the chair you're sitting on is made of. All things. The Lord made the hands that made the idols. There's an implication here. Just, just, just let's get our category of God clear. Okay? Here's the implication. Uh, the category of God is the being outside creation who made creation. That's God. Someone or something cannot be called God if they're within creation. That's offensive nonsense. So here's the point. The obligation to praise and honour of God extends to all people everywhere because he, they are his creation. He is their maker. The most basic reality is true for the whole world. So the most basic duty is true for the whole world as well. The whole world, no matter culture, no matter belief of upbringing, Which leads to our next point. Therefore, the whole world is accountable to him. Look at verse 11. He made this water as well. Funny tasting water here at Parramatta Reese Public. Just saying. Verse 11, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. And just in case we haven't got it, let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Why are we so happy, creation? Why are we so joyful? For he comes. He comes, not just for anything, to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So he's, just not, he's not just the all-powerful maker of all things. 
He's the perfectly righteous judge of all things. In fact, of course, those two things are connected. It's the logic of Scripture. The fact that he is creator gives him the right to be the judge. Him being creator means we're a moral mess. We're a moral mess. Um, it was Chesterton who said, if we stop believing in God, we'll believe in anything. You know, we're, we're, Romans 2, friends, we're haters of God. Left has become right. Ups become down. What we've done to family and to marriage and, to, and with abortion and so on, it's all sanitised and we're well-dressed and we're well-ordered as a society, but we are lost morally. We're anchorless. Um, and, and, you know, I, I used to... I spent a lot of time on university campuses... Um, you know, I used to do debates, you know, we'd get the, the Muslims on stage and we'd have a discussion or, you know, I, I had a, a couple of debates with um, philosophy lecturers and things like that. We'd be on stage and I used to be really uh, scared before those are very nervous, you know, uh, wondering how I'd go, you know, and there'd be an audience, you know, a few hundred people interested, you know, a bunch of our people from church and university students and philosophy students and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'd be really intimidated, thinking, gee, I'm just going to look like a fool here. And uh, I was always stunned, not by my fabulous debating abilities, uh, but by how little they had. They, just, they brought nothing to the big questions. They're building castles in the sky, no foundations, thin logic. Right? It's, wisdom is, is living your life in accordance with the way things are. Where what you do and what you think coheres with reality. Riley prayed before um, that I might think of things that aren't necessarily in my script. That was a dangerous thing to pray. <laughs> Sorry, Riley. Uh, to be wise is to live in accordance with the way things are. Um, and we've just talked about the bedrock of all reality, the living and true God. And because he made us, he sets up the way things are. He is the source of what is good and right. And, and if you try and go, go against the grain, you just get splinters, right? And our that's what our culture's doing at the moment. We're just making it. When you meet someone, uh, and, and if you are struggling with these issues, I just have compassion for you, and I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about it. But if, if you meet someone who is transitioning gender, for example, and I've talked with a number of these folk over the years, our first response should not be anger or rejection. It, it should be compassion because they're rejecting the way things are. They're just hurting themselves, first and foremost. There is a way things are. Uh, he's the judge, right? He sets up the way things are. Therefore, he has a right to be the judge of all things. So, it's right 
that creation responds to the good and righteous judge coming in judgment the way that it does. It's not often the way we think about judgment. Oh, judgment's bad. It's kind of judgy and negative. Right? I don't like it. But here it brings gladness and rejoicing and exaltation because God's judgment means perfect justice. Do you, you ever see on the telly people coming out of court? You'll often, it makes good television, doesn't it? Some judgment will be passed down and the good television will be the family of the, the person tragically who's been murdered or had some crime committed against them. And the family might say something like, we are not satisfied, this will not bring our loved one back. Or we wanted much more or whatever it is. We just can't make things right, can we, with our earthly judgments? You can put someone in jail for as long as you like. It's not going to make things right. Any justice we can have on earth is so incomplete, but when God judges, it will end evil. It will wipe away tears. It will restore all things. The way Jesus gloriously refers to it, he's talking to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. He says, at the renewal of all things. There's a Greek word there. It only comes up twice in the New Testament, the palingenesia. The renewal of all things. Because I'm so old, I can say this. The longer you live, the more your scars pile up. Your mental scars, your emotional scars, your relational scars, your physical scars. I've got a few. Your disappointments. You think you know, but then you know that this world is broken and fallen. And it really won't. Fill your soul and make you content and settle you in eternal joy. When the Lord comes in judgment, it is perfect in its justice and it is wonderful. It's the renewal of all things. All right, so, so where are we? Praise and honour of God is due to God from all people everywhere because he is the creator and the judge of the world. That's the most basic reality and the most basic duty. That's true for everyone. That's the foundational motivation for mission, that God is owed praise and honour and glory from all of creation. When someone puts their trust in him, joins in this praise of his salvation, it's wonderful for that person. There's nothing better. Right? We, we, we kind of think, you know, when you're a kid, you think, I can't wait to heaven because I'm going to get everything I want. Right? Do, do you ever think that? You know, for me as a kid, of course, it's like I'm playing cricket all day and kicking the footy with my mates and it's beach day and you're eating chocolate all day. I don't know, dumb stuff. Right, and, and then you have a slightly, you know, you've got your young adult version, right? Uh, that's, I'm going to get all the things I want. But then you, you get to heaven 
you get God. And that turns out to be everything you want. That's what you realise as you grow in maturity. And we just sung it before, the things of this world growing dim. Right? In, in, in the light of his glory and grace. The central reality of heaven is not our joy and pleasure. It's God receives his right praises from his creation forever. And that's our joy and pleasure. That's our joy and pleasure. And when someone is joined into that, how wonderful for them. The flip side of that reality is the scandal of people ignoring him. Do you understand this? See, what puts someone in the category of evil? Being someone who fails to acknowledge and honour the one true God. Nice people, tax-paying people, people who, let little old, who help little old ladies across the road, they're in the category of evil if they suppress the knowledge of God that they have received in his creation, let alone in, in his son, Jesus, and if they refuse to give him honour and glory. Everyone's accountable for that. If they suppress that knowledge and they refuse that glory, that puts them in the category of evil. Do you understand that? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Creatures, people who ignore him and refuse this, that's a scandal. Our motivation for mission is that the Lord would be honoured and given the glory that's due to him. That's the point of the sermon, by the way, just in case you're struggling. Grab that, okay? It's a bit to go, but grab that. But flick over to Matthew 28 with me. On your device, on your... I think we've got it on the screen as well. I can't see the screen, so there's something happening, I think. Um, end of Matthew 28. Jesus kind of reflects this logic. I want you to see it. Uh, of course, the end of Matthew 28, famously the Great Commission, Jesus sending his apostles and by extension us out on mission. Let's follow the logic. Verse 18. Um, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority, note that, not some, all authority in heaven and on earth. So let's just go with all authority everywhere. No higher authority. He's not a provincial God. He's not a provincial God. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Okay, great, Jesus. So what? What do we do with that? Verse 19. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. Right. It's the same logic. Do you see it? 
the need to go out and make disciples is not here that people need saving from hell. Although that's true, and Jesus highlights that elsewhere. It's not here that we should have Christ-like compassion for people. Although that's certainly true, and Jesus makes that clear elsewhere. No, here the logic is that there is one Lord to whom all owe their allegiance. So people who belong to that Lord must promote him everywhere. That's the logic. Can I just pause here and speak to you if you're not a Christian here this morning? If you're not a Christian here this morning, it's so wonderful that you're here. I'm glad you're here. This is the best place for you to be. Right? I, I hope that you're seeking and asking questions and investigating. If you're sincerely doing that, it's a really dangerous thing to do. It's a wonderful thing to do. I want to ask you to pay special attention to what I just said. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus because... Why is he saying that at this point in time? Because he's the risen Lord. Risen because he died. Because he went to the cross and paid the price for our sin and our shame. And he defeated death and rose to life again. Do you know, it's been said that the Christian faith is both the broadest and the narrowest in the world. Broadest because it admits every kind of person, right? everyone, doesn't matter what background, doesn't matter what, what race, what belief system you've come from, or nothing, doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus is for everyone. So broad, it's wonderful. But it admits them in only one way it's narrow. There's one God and one mediator, Jesus Christ, the Bible says. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father and into his kingdom but by him. Can I encourage you to be asking yourself, if you're not a Christian here this morning, what do I think about Jesus? What's stopping me from placing my trust in him? Whatever it is, I know that that's something that Riley or the team here would love to chat you about. And you've got the one-to-one -one program. It's a great program. I love John's Gospel. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say this, but John's my favourite. Right. <laughs> and this is an urgent thing for you. We just don't know when we'll face the living God in judgment. Don't delay. Don't delay. Well, where do we land? We must be on mission. This is where we land. We must be on mission. The world was lost without the good news about Jesus. That's the need. But the foundational reason for you to give your time and money and speech and your social discomfort to mission is the honour and glory of God. So what do you need to fuel mission? Here's what you need. A clear vision of the glory of God. A clear vision of the glory of God, his majesty, and his beauty. 
his all-satisfying holiness. Your heart to be so filled with love of him who loved you so much that he sent his son. For your mind to be set on things above so that your affections, your affections, what are we thinking there? Your, your plans, your plans for joy, your plans for security, for contentment, that they might be set on him. That's the fuel that would see you being boldly on mission for his name's sake. Might put you a little bit on the spectrum so that you overcome your anxiety and your awkwardness to yet have compassion on the people around you. Now, how do you fuel that? Let me just lay something on you really quickly as I close. The means of grace. Really simply, the means of grace. The means, the things God has promised to use to grow you into immaturity, to change your heart, to change your heart. Um, word and prayer. Word and prayer. Um, you gather in word and prayer. So word and prayer yourself and, and in the gathering too. Um, here's the mistake I think we make with the means of grace. We go, yes, word and prayer. I, 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 must, I, must, allow God, I must allow God to change me. So I'm going to read the Bible this week. I'm going to pray this week. It's a struggle, isn't it, to be consistent. Um, and I think one of the reasons we struggle besides Satan whispering in our ear and besides our culture constantly distracting us and you name your struggle, um, is we're impatient. I think we need to think about it in terms of... Anyone a fan here of the Shawshank Redemption? Anyone old enough? Please, please be another one. I'll talk to you at morning tea. Yes, here we go. Okay. Um, uh, what's the rule of geology? Time and, time and pressure. You've just got to chip away. Time and pressure. Okay, and allow God to chip away. In Titus chapter 2, so here I am riffing again, but in Titus chapter 2, um, let me go there. Timothy, Timothy, Titus. Um, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace is the gospel. Um, now, the ESV does a good job here um, because NIV says teaching us. No, no, it's training. It's a different word. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Right, so the gospel trains us, actually. Um, and, and, and you read the NIV and so, our teaching. So it's like information, I learn the information. And that's no, not quite the word. The, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodly, ungodliness and worldly passions. Worldly passions is the Romans chapter 1 word, for our misplaced desires. That's the word that's often used with reference to idolatry. idolatry. So, so how, do you, how, do you, how do you change your desires? It's not by going, I renounce my ungodly desires. 
And I, I hereby will have healthy and Godward ones. It's not how it works. You need the gospel to train you over time, friends, as you read, as you pray, as you gather, as you praise. Please have a long-term view about persevering in the means of grace that with time and pressure, your heart might be soaked so that your desires are heavenward and that your joys and contentment and security would be found there. Well, here we are, friends, gathering. We gathered and we're going to sing. And uh, Riley was kind enough to include me in the emails. We're going to sing. I think I described it as a banger in the email. <laughs> Let the nations be glad. Let the glory of God forever be our joy. Let's lift our voices together as we sing.